0: right, there we go. So around our house, uh, one phrase that you might hear periodically, uh, probably more often than I care to hear, uh, says something like this, uh, hey Dan, do you want me to call someone to fix that? (laughs) Now typically what's what's behind that statement is a, a lot of love and care for sure, but it also has this underlying statement that says your attempt to fix it has failed once again, (laughs) right? So there's currently a a toilet that I've been battling with quite a long time. Uh, The the railing on the stairway took quite a while, but I did figure that one out. Uh, See, home maintenance has never been something that I've been strong in. And with home maintenance, you basically need two components. You need the knowledge of what to do, and you need the right tools. If you have the right knowledge, but don't have the tools, a lot of things you can't fix. If you have the right tools, but not the knowledge, that's not going to help either. And when we first got married, I had neither of those. And oftentimes, I still have neither of those. But, of course, with YouTube, I mean, I've, I've come a long way. Uh, with YouTube, I mean, you can do well, lot. Not, not anything, but you can do a lot, right? There's a lot of home maintenance you can do. Now, when it comes to Bible interpretation, you need those same things. You need to know what you're doing, and you need to have the right tools, And so we come to a passage that's quite uh, interesting. Uh, I think it's one of the most exciting ones in the book of Mark. It's very just got a lot of things going on, and it can feel thorny, can feel confusing. But if you have the right tools and know what to do, it actually is quite clear, and it's very enjoyable. And so I think you can read this passage and enjoy the way Mark is putting this together as an author, and then also exalt the Lord Jesus and enjoy him for what's being communicated communicated here. So what I thought we'd do is do some, do some heavy lifting early on, and we'll, we'll just focus on some biblical interpretation tools and why they're important for this particular passage. So it's going to be some heavy lifting early on, but once we have those in place, I think we'll, as we read through it, it will be quite obvious what is going on, what Mark is trying to communicate. So it, some heavy lifting early on, but I uh, hope that you'll enjoy uh, the passage afterwards. Uh, so some tools that we need and to know about, about reading the scriptures. Uh, the first one is structure. And we talk about that a lot, especially in like, text groups. Uh, authors organize their material, right? We do this all the time. We organize our material so that we're trying to be able to communicate a certain emphasis for the audience. And so authors will organize the material so as to, to raise a light so you say, R- look right here, this is the hotspot. This is what you got to focus on. So we're in narrative literature the, the Gospels, primarily narrative literature. Um, there's a couple ways that authors will structure narrative. So a very prominent one is to use what's called plot arc. You probably learned about this in grade school. It's where you have the introduction of a new scene, and then you have some sort of a conflict, and you have this rising tension. And there's questions in the air, both for the people in the, the scene, but also as the reader and you have these questions going on, and you finally reach this point where the question is so big, there's one more question out there that has to be answered, and then finally you get it answered, and it comes to the resolution in a new setting. And it's right there at that spot, typically, the big question in the air, right there we call that the climax, and how that question is answered in the resolution that tends to be the hot spot where we focus on in interpretation So the the authors will often use plot line. They also use uh, character contrast. We actually just saw this at the end of uh, chapter 10. If you remember, Jesus asked the same question of the disciples and of Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? And Mark is intentionally putting these two characters together, asking the very same question, so that you see the contrast between them. James and John thought they had what it took to be the important people. Bartimaeus said... All I am is a blind beggar. I got nothing. And Mark is trying to draw our attention to Bartimaeus and hold him up. So the authors will often use contrast of characters. Another one they'll use is scene stacking. And Mark likes to do this. The gospel writers like this. They'll just do very quick scenes, one right after another, sometimes three, sometimes four. Um, And what you want to do is take all those scenes together because oftentimes it goes something like A, A, B, or it might go A, 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 meaning... They have similar meanings, and the author is trying to put these scenes together. They don't have, like, a plot line in themselves. They're very quick scenes, sometimes two sentences, sometimes three, and that's it. He moves on to the next scene. But you're supposed to read that and ask asking the question, how do these scenes relate? Because he's trying to emphasize a certain meaning. And a, a final one, which is a form of scene stacking, but oftentimes gets its own category, which is what we call sandwiching. And so... Uh, interpolation or intercalation are some more technical terms, but it's sandwiching. It means you got a piece of bread, and then you got the meat, and then you got the bread again. And so it's a story within a story. So if you remember Jairus's daughter that Jesus heals, he, first Jesus is on his way to heal Jairus's daughter, and then there's the woman with the flow of blood, and then the healing of Jairus's daughter. And that's a story within the story, and they, they meant to, they're meant to go together, where the, you read the inner part in light of the outer part, and you read the outer part in light of the inner part. And you, you don't want to separate them because they're helping one another so that you can interpret it rightly. And the authors like, like to do this, and Mark especially likes to do this. Uh, many have, have called, called them Markin sandwiches because he, he just really likes to do this. Uh, I think one of the, my favorite ones is actually right here. And you can see that if you heard, saw it when, in the reading. First, there's the cursing of the fig tree. Then there's the temple upheaval. And then the fig tree is cursed. Now what's interesting about this one is that sometimes in the sandwiching you have uh, what you might call the extra sauce. You know, you go to a restaurant, you order a burger, and sitting right next to the burger is the secret sauce of the, of the uh, restaurant, right? Now what you don't want to do is just eat the burger and toss the sauce. Like the sauce is that you put that on the burger and that's going to make the burger unique. This is, this is the stuff. And, what happens is sometimes after the sandwiching happens, there's an explanation of what actually we're supposed to get from it. And we have that in this one. He doesn't just move on to the next scene. We actually have Jesus then give instructions for how do we respond to that very sandwich that we saw. And so this, this is a, a fun one because what we then know or should assume is that the hot spot or what we're really supposed to focus on is not necessarily the sandwich, but it's actually instruction at the end. That's the secret sauce. That's the extra sauce that is going to colorize everything. So the first thing is to know structure, uh, the sandwiching uh, method that Mark uses here. A second tool uh, that will be important for us is the action proclamation, or you could say symbolic action. So this is common throughout the scriptures. It's common in our day. Right? We'll use symbolic action. We don't even have to use words, but we're, we're communicating something by an action. So if we were talking and you said something like, hey, can you keep this confidential? I could go, I didn't say anything, and I don't need to say anything. I've just communicated to you. My lips are sealed. They're zipped. Right? Yes, I can, I can keep this confidential. So we do this all the time. Uh, or you, there's a team, at uh, one of the fields I play at in softball, their, their team is mangoes, right? Let's say we were playing the mangoes uh, today, and you said, so how do you think the game's going to go against the mangoes? And I had a cup of yellow juice here, and I drank it, and I turned it around, as a mango juice. Right? And I didn't have to say anything. All I'm saying is I'm going to be drinking mango juice for lunch, right? <laughs> it's communicating. We're going to crush them. I don't have to do anything. It's just this communicating this action out, you know, non-verbally. Well, the prophets love to do this, right? Sometimes it's very, very dramatic, like Hosea, remember? Uh, The prophet Hosea is is commanded to go and marry a prostitute, who the prostitute then leaves uh, Hosea, and he's supposed to go get her back. All all the while communicating to God's people how much they are uh, like adulteresses, to God, they're supposed to be married to God, and they have gone after other false gods. They're like the adulterer, and yet God continues by His grace and mercy to run after her. Hosea's life is meant to communicate that to the people. So that's a dramatic one, but you also have a lot of smaller ones. Uh, most of the prophets will do these. Like Jeremiah uh, has this clay flask, and he in, in front of the leaders of God's people, and he smashes it, and he's communicating to the people. This is this is what's going to happen to Israel. She's deserted God, and God's going to smash her, and all the oil's going to go running dry. And so they, they would do this throughout uh, their ministry as a way of prophetically proclaiming a message nonverbally, right? And what we have here in the passage is Jesus doing that twice. We have two scenes where Jesus is not necessarily proclaiming something verbally, but he's doing it by action. So in the cursing of the fig tree uh, that's that's has leaves but no fruit the the fig tree is giving in a the appearance of a tree that will eventually produce fruit so a fig tree uh, if you don't know that they will leaf uh, after they've already the, the the tree is given signs that it's going to bear fruit and then it will leaf so if you see a fig tree with leaves on it you should be walk, able to walk over and see some sort of a sign that there will be figs. Now, oftentimes, you can actually eat those very unripe figs. They're, they're called the early fig, and you can eat those. Just like you can with, like, a squash uh, vine. You know, many of those flowers you could actually eat if you want to. The flower gives indication that there will be fruit. So Jesus sees this fig tree with leaving. You, you, he should walk over and be able to see signs that it's going to bear fruit. And he sees nothing. And so he curses it. He gives this appearance of fruitfulness but it has nothing. As an indication, a non uh, nonverbal proclamation that this is the very thing that's happening at the temple. It has all this appearance, all this external looking like worship, but it's totally empty, and he's going to curse it. And that's the scene we actually watch happen. Jesus goes in and throwing, overthrowing uh, the money-changing uh, tables and throwing out the animals and such as a way of... Signifying, non-verbally, God's judgment is upon you. This All this activity is actually fruitless. It's faithless. It looks good, but it's empty. And God's going to bring a curse on it. And so it's a s- symbolic action that is happening in this passage. Uh, that's two. So structure is going to be important for us. Symbolic action so we can rightly understand what Jesus is is doing. A third one is very important because this this can be a well-discussed portion of the passage is figures of speech. So figures of speech are when we use phrases or words that they're meant to actually be understood as non-literal. In fact, to interpret a figure of speech literally, you actually misread it. So for example, there's metaphors and similes. Right? They're, they're similar, but a simile uses the, the terms like or as, and a, a metaphor just says, this is that. So you're comparing two objects, right? So, for example, if I said, my neighbor's dog is a monster, right? That's a metaphor. My neighbor's dog is a monster. I'm comparing these two objects. I'm saying, this is that. A simile would say, my neighbor's dog is like a cheetah. I'm using the like. That's a simile. Now, in both of those cases, nobody listening to me is going to assume that my neighbor's dog is actually not a dog. It's actually got one eye uh, hanging out, and it's. Blah, blah. You think it's a dog, but you think it's probably snarly and mean, right? It's just—it's not a kind dog. Nobody's—nobody thinks the dog is—is uh, is, is actually a cat, a big wild cat. No, you probably think a cheetah, well, he's probably talking about his fast or whatever. You're going to grab some sort of a characteristic of a cheetah and say, the dog must resemble that, right? But you, you very easily just go, of course he's talking about a dog, but he's trying to communicate something. So in, order, in other words, if you interpreted what I said literally, you actually totally misheard me. We intuitively do this all the time. We hear metaphors and similes and in, immediately know how to interpret them when we speak them together. And the scriptures use them constantly especially in the Psalms. Another thing we see is uh, what we call exaggeration and uh, hyperbole. Exaggeration and hyperbole are very similar. Exaggeration says something that's sort of over the top. Um, So that's exaggeration is over the top, yet it's possible. Where hyperbole is over the top and it's totally unrealistic. So, for example, I might say, like, at, let's say I was really full. I ate it's, uh, some pizza. I had a lot of pizza tonight. And I said, oh, man, I'm so full. I ate that whole pizza. Now, I'm exaggerating. Let's say I, I ate three-fourths of it. I didn't eat the whole thing. I'm trying to communicate to you that I just gobbled up a ton of pizza. But it's possible. You, you think, well, he's probably exaggerating, but it's very possible he, he could eat the whole pizza. What I do know is that he is full because he ate a lot, right? That would be exaggeration. Hyperbole would be to say, man, I'm so full. I ate more pizza tonight than Pizza Hut cooks in an evening. Now, immediately you go, well, no, Pizza Hut, uh, they probably cook at least 40, 50, 60 pizzas. There's no way that dude can eat that many pizzas. But clearly he ate a lot. Now, what's important with a hyperbole is if you interpret my words literally, you, you misheard it right? That's a wrong interpretation, but you also don't want to bring it down and go, oh, well, he's just exaggerating, so it probably means he ate a piece or two, right? I'm clearly communicating that. I'm full because I ate a lot of pizza, so you want to hear that force. You just don't want to interpret it uh, uh, literally, otherwise you're going to mishear it. Jesus uses hyperbole in here, and we're supposed to hear that as hyperbole when he says, if anyone says to the mountains, be moved into the sea, it will happen. We're not supposed to hear that and assume, oh, yeah, that's what he, he totally means. I can go out and tell the, the Himalayas that, hey, today I want you in the sea. That, that's not how you're supposed to hear that. So we don't want to overhear a hyperbole like this, uh, because otherwise Jesus misheard the hyperbole that he spoke. Right? As he's in the garden, garden saying, not my will, but yours be done. Why didn't he just stop there? Say, everything I ask of the Father, I have. I don't want your will to be done. I have mine. Boom. Instead, he goes forward and says, not yet not my will be yours be done. It's submitting under the Father. Or maybe the Apostle Paul missed this note. You know, what? As he asked for the thorn in his flesh to be removed three times, and God told him, no. So that's clearly, uh, it seems like it's total contradiction. Well, it would be if we understood the hyperbole as literal. But that would be to misread it. So we don't want to overhear it, but we also don't want to underhear it. Jesus is really trying to communicate something here. Your Father loves to hear you, He delights to answer you. Come, bring your requests, ask Him anything. His ears are open. And so we we want to feel the force of that. All right, so there's structure that's important, there's uh, figures of speech. That are important. There's these prophetic actions that are important, all of them happening within the passage here. But we also have more. We have these historically modeled promises, or what you would call uh, type and typology. A historically modeled promise is when you have uh, a a person or an event or some sort of institution like marriage or something in the ceremonial system, a sacrifice or a temple that is ordained by God to function in history, but it's always pointing beyond itself to another promise. Something else is coming. And this is very common. Uh, We see it throughout the Old Testament of these many things pointing forward. You You have David, right, as he defeats the enemies of God's people, right? Rescuing them physically from their enemies, and that God's people celebrate in the plunder. Always pointing forward to a greater deliverer who would come, the greater David, who would rescue us not just temporarily from physical enemies, but a greater enemy of sin and death. And that would be forever. See, David functions in history as a real rescuer, but he's pointing to a greater rescuer to come. Or Jesus says in John 6, as he's talking to the leaders, he says, hey, you remember the bread that God sent down uh, for, to care for the, uh, the, the fa- your fathers in the wilderness, manna from heaven? says, God provided for them so that they would live, but eventually they died. That bread communicates a message. He says, because I'm the true bread. That bread pointed to me. I'm the true bread that comes down from heaven, that if you receive me, you'll live forever. See, now what happens in typology, there's always correlation. See, as bread and bread, there's similarity here. But there's always escalation. There's, there's, a, there's a built-in limitation with the original. And it's always pointing to something greater. And why that's important is we have this happening in this passage as well, although it's a little bit more subtle, and it's kicking it off, which will continue to be unfolded throughout the book and through the rest of the New Testament, when we have the temple and the, the cursing of the temple, the destruction of the temple. The temple is a sign of the dwelling place of God, right? We are made in God's image, and we are made... To dwell with God. That's how we are most satisfied, is to dwell with God. And you see that right in the garden. Adam and Eve are placed in the dwelling place of God to be with God. And yet, when, once they get kicked out of the garden in Genesis 3, the rest of the Bible is trying to answer the question, how are we going to get back into God's presence? Because we need God's presence. Apart from God, we have no life. And so then you have the tabernacle, which is supposed to be this unique place on earth that heaven and earth meet where God's presence dwells among his people very uniquely. God certainly is everywhere, but God displays his presence and his power uniquely in the tabernacle. And then the greater tabernacle is built, which is the temple. This is the permanent tabernacle. Now, the the, the temple, you have what's called the holy place, where only a priest can go in, and then you have the holy of holies, that only the high priest can go in once a year, and that's it. And it's in the holy of holies where God's presence dwells always pointing to the presence of God, but it's not supposed to be an end in itself. It's supposed to be pointing to something greater, that a greater temple is coming where we can dwell with God. It's a picture. It's a historical model of a greater temple to come, which is why when Jesus is actually in John, as he recounts as Jesus once is turning over the tables and stuff, the the leaders ask Jesus, they say, what sign are you going to give us that you have authority to do that? And he says, destroy this temple. I'll raise this temple up in three days. Their response, what are you you talking about? It took us 46 years to build this temple. And John tells us then what they didn't understand was Jesus was talking about his own body. In other words, the physical temple is not needed anymore because the true temple, God himself, Jesus is the true temple. God is dwelling among his people as Jesus. Of course, then raises the question, well, what about when, when Jesus then ascends to glory and he's reigning on high. Well, where's the temple then? Which is, as the New Testament continues to unfold, the sending of the Spirit to dwell within the people of God. In Corinthians, we're told that the, the church collectively is the temple of God. We are God's dwelling place, and then individually as well in 1 Corinthians 6, that we individually are the very temple of God. Here's a major question happening in this, in this passage. If God is cursing the temple and putting an end to all those activities there. Where are God's people going to meet God? Because the temple is the place you go to pray. The temple is the place you go to find atonement, forgiveness. The temple is the place you go to worship, to give thank offerings. The temple is the place to meet God. If that's gone, what are we going to do? And this passage is going to move us forward in redemptive history. So that's massively important. Uh, and we have one more thing to, to cover, and then I trust as we read it, it'll be like, that's totally what's happening in the passage. I know, a little heavy lifting, we got one more, uh, and that would be the, the use of Bible quotes. And uh, oftentimes, when the authors are quoting from a previous passage, the Old Testament, they're not intending just to grab that little snippet, but you're supposed to go all the way back in and grab the whole passage. So it would be something like this: if I if I were to just stand up here and say, "When peace, like a river, attendeth my way," many of you automatically go, "Ah, it is well with my soul." When sorrows like sea billows roll, all I have to do is say the first line, and the whole song can swim into your mind, and you know the message of that that uh, uh, song, right? No matter what happens, how life hits me, my soul is well with the Lord. Right? So all I have to do is say the first line, and you can instantly do that. Or, uh, let's uh, let's see who can get this one here. Uh, if I said this line, uh, I said, you cut him. You heard him. You see? You see? He's not a machine. He's a man. Anybody got that? Rocky yeah. Yeah, it's Rocky IV. One of the greatest movies ever. <laughs> <It's> right after... <laughs> Right after the second round, and he finally cuts uh, Drago, and I mean, what, a, what an epic line. But what happens, you say that, you can, you can instantly place yourself right at the early stages, the, the, the fight's starting to take a turn, you go, okay, we might be able to, he might be able to pull this off, the underdog, he's going to win it. And it's pulling up that whole section of the movie. And we do this all the time. It's like a hyperlink, right? And if you hit a hyperlink in, in, on email, it takes you to the, the page uh, that you want to go to. So what we, why that's important is we have, if you look at verse 17 in our passage, uh, after he's overturned the money changers and such, uh, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, verse 17, and he was teaching them, and this is what he was saying. Is it not written that my house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations? but you have made it as a den of robbers. So Mark here is tipping you off to exactly what Jesus is teaching in the temple. And he quotes from two two different prophets. First one is from Isaiah 56. In that whole chapter, Isaiah is making a proclamation that foreigners will come and worship God. The outcasts will come and worship God. They will come and make sacrifice. Historically, redemptive historically, foreigners and, and outcasts were not allowed to get that close. But now they're coming in and worshiping God. And people from all nations will come and worship the Lord. So apparently Jesus is talking about that from Isaiah 56 in the temple that day. The second quote comes from Jeremiah 7. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, let's turn back there so you can see uh, what Jesus seems to have been teaching that day to the people in the temple. After he's just done all this uh, upheaval in the temple, Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah was writing uh, during the time when the southern kingdom of uh, Judah uh, was about to go into exile to Babylon. The northern kingdom had already been taken away to Assyria. They had already been taken captive into exile. So the southern uh, kingdom was still around for a, n- a number of years here. And they were, Jeremiah's pr- promising that God's judgment is coming for the south as well. And they're going to be exiled. So verse 7, chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, from Yahweh. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, it's the temple, and proclaim this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of the armies, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, repent, turn, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways, truly repent in your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner like you're doing, if you do not oppress the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place, And if you do not go after other gods to to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you people trust in deceptive words to no avail, to no value. Tell me this, will you steal and murder, commit adultery? Will you swear falsely and make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known? And then are you going to come and stand before me in this house in the temple, which is called by my name, and say, Oh, we're delivered! Only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? A den would be a place, like a hideout, right? Oftentimes a cave where you go for safety. This supposed to be a place of worship and this is the place where robbers live? They find security here? Is this what's going on? Behold, in the middle of verse 11, Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that is in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it, because of the evil of my people Israel. Shiloh, uh, you can read about what happened there is in 1 1 Samuel in the opening chapters. Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle was kept, the unique dwelling place of God. Eli at the time was the priest, and his sons were very wicked. And remember, uh, this is in the time of Samuel. uh, Eli was a wicked uh, high priest as well. And they went against the Philistines, and what happened? But the Philistines took the ark of God, and they killed uh, Eli's sons, and Eli fell over dead. So he's saying, hey, why don't you go revisit Shiloh? Remember what happened there? When the Philistines came and got rid of the Ark of the Covenant, and I killed the priests? Go watch that. Uh, Let's see, verse 13. And now, because you have done all these things, again, this is Jeremiah speaking in his day, you've done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you would not listen. When I called, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to, to the house that is called by my name, the temple in Jeremiah's day, and in which you trust, and to, to the place that I gave to you and your fathers, I will do to, to this, just as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight. I will cast out all of your kinsmen, all of your, the offspring of Ephraim. So what Jeremiah here is proclaiming to the people in the temple in his day is that you do all this religious activity, but it's totally void of real faith. You come and you oppress people. This is supposed to be a place where robbers come and are cleansed and are changed. This is the place where robbers are living. And because of that, because of your evil deeds, I will cast you out. I will destroy this place just like I did in Shiloh. And what Jesus then is saying is pulling up this whole scene and saying, hey, Why don't you go read about Shiloh? Why don't you read about what happened after Jeremiah said this? And guess what I'm going to be doing? I'm throwing this place down because of your evil deeds. This Is supposed to be a place of worship? And what are you doing? You're exploiting people, charging them exuberant amounts of money so they come and worship here? Because they're fake. This is all a religious activity. And he condemns it. This is a very strong message that Jesus is bringing in the temple. All right, so with that, those are our our five things that we need to know how to read. Uh, And I know time is like running out here, but hopefully now we'll read it and be like, yeah, that's totally what's happening here. Chapter 11, verse 12. We'll just read through it real quick. On the following day, when Jesus and his disciples came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, Appearance of fruit, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written that my house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have turned, made it into a den of robbers? And the Chief priests and the scribes, they heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him because they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And just so you know what's going on there with the animals, uh, when, when people would come to Jerusalem, to the temple, they needed to have a sacrifice to, to offer to God. Uh, and they also needed a temple tax. So it's kind of how the, they pay the bills, you know, keep the lights on or whatever whatever they had. they had, they got to pay the bills of the temple. So you, gotta, you have to have money to uh, a temple tax. Now, the temple tax was in a particular... Uh, Not dollar, but a a currency, right? And the currency of the people was not the same as the temple tax. And so in order to pay the temple tax, you had to do a a currency exchange. And just like we do in our day, you know, go to Ethiopia, you can't use U.S. dollars. You got to use Burr. In order to buy Burr, you got to exchange it, but typically you're going to have some sort of a fee. So this this is where they got them. Right? you you, you got to pay a temple tax here. You don't have that kind of money. we got that kind of money. See, so this is the only place you can get it in order to get it. Sorry, we're going to have to upcharge you. you know? So they're, they're, they're exploiting the people here. Similarly, with the sacrifice, uh, you have folks that you, you could bring your own sacrifice, but if you're traveling weeks uh, to get here, I mean, that's, that's not always the easiest thing to be bringing your sacrifice. So instead, that you can, you can come and you can buy it here. But this is like Valentine's Day, right? I mean, if you're going to do Valentine's Day and you're going to get the flowers the day before, get ready. You know, the upcharge happens, right? This is what's going on here. This is not about like worship and caring, loving neighbor. Like that's what we're called to be, right? Love God, love neighbor. This is not loving neighbor and therefore not even loving God. This is all fake. They're exploiting people. They're using people. This is supposed to be a place of worship where people come and find forgiveness and are cleansed and pray this has now come a place to fill your pocketbook and exploit people. And moving on, verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, here's the bottom part of the sandwich. They, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter, Peter remembered and, and said to him, Rabbi, look, the, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, now this is, you might wonder, is he going to explain what just happened? He doesn't explain it, actually. In fact, he's, I think he's going to answer a question that the disciples aren't, maybe aren't even asking, but they will be asking. What are we going to do if the temple's destroyed? Where are we going to meet God? Where are we going to worship? How are we going, how are we going to be close to God? And so Jesus is going to help them out preemptively. Verse 22, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, May forgive you. So I think what Jesus is doing there with that extra sauce is answering the question: What are we going to do now? If the temple system's destroyed, what are we going to do? How are we going to be with God? Where are we going to pray? How are we going to come close? And if you remember the the way Mark has gone, ten forty five is very key for us. When Jesus says, "I come and I give my life as a ransom." I'm the ultimate sacrifice to actually bring redemption to God's people and to bring them close. And as the temple, the very true temple of God, there is no more need for a physical temple. But then Jesus turns around and says, because of my sacrifice, because I'm the ransom, you may come close and closer than you ever dreamed, actually. See, the temple had this built-in declaration to the people, stay away stay away, right? Because the temple, the only, only the priest could go in the holy place. If you're not a priest, you're not getting very close. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies one time a year. And that's it. So it's always had this message of stay back. You cannot come in. And if you hear that, to, to, to hear the shift of what's going on, it would be like, it's, you cannot come in yet. You cannot come in yet. You cannot come in yet. And what's happening is all of a sudden, because of Jesus, the way is open. And it's come in. And it's not just come in because you're forgiven, but it's come in because you're God's children. Now, there's a a phrase in here that's very important. At the very end of this passage, in verse 25, he says, So that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you. The... Mark has not communicated that God is father to his people in this whole gospel until now. It's only actually the whole idea of God being father has come up one time in the book. It's in chapter 8 when Jesus says the son of man when he comes in the glory of his father. So he's referring to the, the, God being the father of the son of man. And now what you have happening is Jesus turning around and saying, oh, by the way. Is your father, too. You See, what happens is a major shift in the New Testament. Old Testament has this idea of God being father, uh, God's people being his children, 15 times throughout the whole Old Testament. In the Gospels alone, you have 165 statements of God is the father of his people. Because what you have is Jesus turning around and saying, he's not only my father, but is your father, too. Because all who are, all who are united to Jesus have a new relationship with God. Where we know God as Father and us as his children. This is one of my favorite quotes. I know I've shared this before here uh, from J.I. Packer. This is from Knowing God. I just love this quote. Here's what he says. What's a, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways. But the richest answer that I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. If you want to know how well a person understands Christianity... Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity, Christianity very well at all. Here's a key statement. The revelation to the believer that God is his father is, in a sense, the climax of the Bible. Now that's an amazing statement. He says, the revelation to the believer that God is Father is, in a sense, the climax of the Bible. Because what he, what he does throughout the chapter, he goes on to say, is, look, it'd be a very great, rejoiceful, I think something to rejoice in, if God forgave you, and that was it. That, that would be amazing. You were born a child of wrath and deserve God's everlasting wrath forever, and God would be righteous. And if he, if he wiped out your debt and said, no no more debt, and just forgave you, that would be a glorious thing, even if he kept you out here. He'd say, said, now you stay out there. I, I don't, I'm kind of sick of you. That was the wrong way to treat me. I'll forgive you, but stay away. That would still be an amazing thing. And what, what, what Packers points out is that would be a glorious thing, but isn't it now by far greater to know God as Father? Because it communicates not just a judge forgiving a criminal, This communicates the all-powerful, all-knowing, faithful, good, caring, gentle, merciful God coming close as Father. This is a perfect love that is very hard for us to grasp because we see so little of it in our world. And even the the best small pictures we see of it's so full of selfishness. I'm a selfish dad. Every once in a while, it's, it's helpful to be able to see, oh, there, there came out something of, of love that's a, a small picture of it, albeit how sinful and selfish I am. And I've told you the stories about how I try to go to uh, my kids' uh, sports uh, activities, and I struggle there. I struggle to cheer. And I don't know why this is in me. I can cheer at my own softball games. So but when I'm at my kids' games, I cannot cheer because I start getting choked up. Now, two years ago was the first time i fully experienced this, and I have an update for you. I go to these things, the cross-country meet, the volleyball uh, games, the soccer games. The other day I was at a volleyball game. I couldn't even get a single word out still. I don't care how my kids are doing in the sport. I don't care if they're the worst on the field. They're my kids, and I love them, and I'm proud of them, and I cherish them. Stand at a cross-country meet, and I actually got a line out the other day, and it was glorious. I want to. I just I love them so deeply, and it's such a small picture. I am a selfish man. God the Father is crazy about you if you're one of his people. If you are united to Christ and have trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf, God adores you. You're the apple of his eye. And you've probably heard parents say, I would move heaven and earth for them. And they they're, we're trying to communicate. I, w- I would do anything for them. If they needed something, I'd, I'd sell the car just to care for them if they were in great need. I'd give them one of my organs if I had to so they could live. I'd do anything. And just think of the hours and hours and dollars and dollars that parents pour on their kids. And they do it joyfully because they love them. And here, when we think of God as Father and Jesus saying, look, you can, you can ask the father. And he'll move the mountains for you. He loves to hear you. He wants your requests. He delights to pour out his grace for you like a perfect loving father would be for you. Sinful though you be, just like a child. You bring nothing to the table, but God is a loving, perfect father. And when that lands on us, it makes us people who pray. And it makes us people who forgive other people Exact opposite of what's happening in the, the temple. The temple, they were exploiting people. Jesus says, look, when you know the true message of who God is and who you are, you actually begin to bear fruit that's real. You actually pray, and you actually forgive people. That's how the passage ends. Exact opposite of what's going on in the temple. And with that, we've got to shut it down. We'll move to the Lord's uh, table. Um, the Lord's table is a, a physical reminder for us to... to be be able to tangibly grab these elements, remember the death and resurrection on our behalf and God's promise to us as his people. If you're here and you worship Jesus as the Christ and know God as Father, uh, the table's open for you provided you are walking with God in repentant faith. If you're here this morning and you do not worship Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God who took on flesh, um, or you are not walking in repentant faith, and we ask that you not partake. But if you're here walking in repentant faith, worshiping King Jesus, we invite you to come, grab the elements, and return to this, your seat, and we'll partake together.